0: It's time for Tuesday Terror here on the Mutual Audio Network. Be sure to leave the lights on while you listen. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theater. The following audio theater is rated ADPG so parental guidance is suggested. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through a Glass Darkly. Tonight's presentation, The Rats in the Walls, by H.P. Lovecraft. First published in Weird Tales, March 1924. Part 1 of 2. On July 16th, 1923, I moved into Exum Priory after the last workman had finished his labors. The restoration had been a stupendous task, for little had remained of the deserted pile but a shell-like ruin. Yet because it had been the seat of my ancestors, I let no expense deter me. The place had not been inhabited since the reign of James I, when a tragedy of intensely hideous, though largely unexplained, nature had struck down the master, five of his children, and several servants, and driven forth under a cloud of suspicion and terror, the third son, my lineal progenitor, and the only survivor of the abhorred line. With this sole heir denounced as a murderer, the estate had reverted to the crown, nor had the accused man made any attempt to exculpate himself or regain his property. Shaken by some horror greater than that of conscience or the law, and expressing only a frantic wish to exclude the ancient edifice from his sight and memory, Walter Delapore, 11th Baron Exum, fled to Virginia and there founded the family which by the next century had become known as Delapore. Exum Priory had remained untenanted though later allotted to the estates of the Norris family and much studied because of its peculiarly composite architecture, an architecture involving Gothic towers resting on a Saxon or Romanesque substructure, whose foundation in turn was of a still earlier order or blend of orders, Roman and even Druidic or native Cymric if legends speak truly, This foundation was a very singular thing, being merged on one side with the solid limestone of the precipice from whose brink the priory overlooked a desolate valley, three miles west of the village of Anchester. Architects and antiquarians loved to examine this strange relic of forgotten centuries, but the country folk hated it. They had hated it hundreds of years before when my ancestors lived there, and they hated it now with the moss and mold of abandonment on it. I had not been a day in Anchester before I knew I came of an accursed house. And this week, workmen have blown up Exum Priory and are busy obliterating the traces of its foundations. The bare statistics of my ancestry I had always known, together with the fact that my first American forebear had come to the colonies under a strange cloud. Of details, however, I had been kept wholly ignorant through the policy of reticence always maintained by the Delapores. Unlike our planter neighbors, we seldom boasted of crusading ancestors or other medieval and renaissance heroes, nor was any kind of tradition handed down, except what may have been recorded in the sealed envelope left before the Civil War by every squire to his eldest son for posthumous opening. The glories we cherished were those achieved since the Migration, the glories of a proud and honorable, if somewhat reserved and unsocial, Virginia line. During the war, our fortunes were extinguished and our whole existence changed by the burning of Carfax, our home on the banks of the James. My grandfather, advanced in years, had perished in that incendiary outrage and with him the envelope that bound us all to the past. I can recall that fire today as I saw it then at the age of seven, with the federal soldiers shouting, the women screaming, and the household howling and praying. My father was in the army, defending Richmond, and after many formalities, my mother and I were passed through the lines to join him. When the war ended, we all moved north, whence my mother had come, and I grew to manhood, middle age, and ultimate wealth as a stolid Yankee. Neither my father nor I ever knew what our hereditary envelope had contained. And as I merged into the greyness of Massachusetts business life, I lost all interest in the mysteries which evidently lurked far back in my family tree. Had I suspected their nature, how gladly I would have left Exum Priory to its moss, bats, and cobwebs. My father died in 1904 but without any message to leave me or to my only child, Alfred, a motherless boy of 10. It was this boy who reversed the order of family information, for although I could give him only jesting conjectures about the past, he wrote me of some very interesting ancestral legends when the late war took him to England in 1917 as an aviation officer. Apparently, the Delapores had a colorful and perhaps sinister history. For a friend of my son's, Captain Edward Norris of the Royal Flying Corps, dwelt near the family seat at Anchester and related some peasant superstitions, which few novelists could equal for wildness and incredibility. Norris himself, of course, did not take them seriously, but they amused my son and made good material for his letters to me. It was this legendary which definitely turned my attention to my transatlantic heritage and made me resolve to purchase and restore the family seat which Norris showed to Alfred in its picturesque desertion and offered to get for him at a surprisingly reasonable figure since his own uncle was the present owner. I bought Exum Priory in 1918 but was almost immediately distracted from my plans of restoration by the return of my son as a maimed invalid. During the two years that he lived, I thought of nothing but his care, having even placed my business under the direction of partners. In 1921, as I found myself bereaved and aimless, a retired manufacturer no longer young, I resolved to divert my remaining years with my new possession. Visiting Anchester in December, I was entertained by Captain Norris, a plump, amiable young man who had thought much of my son and secured his assistance in gathering plans and anecdotes to guide in the coming Restoration. Exim Priory itself I saw without emotion, a jumble of tottering medieval ruins covered with lichens and honeycombed with rook's nests, perched perilously upon a precipice and denuded of floors or other interior features save the stone walls of the separate towers. As I gradually recovered the image of the edifice as it had been when my ancestor left it over three centuries before, I began to hire workmen for the reconstruction. In every case I was forced to go outside the immediate locality, for the Anchester villagers had an almost unbelievable fear and hatred of the place. This sentiment was so great that it was sometimes communicated to the outside laborers, causing numerous desertions, whilst its scope appeared to include both the Priory and its ancient family. My son had told me that he was somewhat avoided during his visits because he was a de la poor, and I now found myself subtly ostracized for a like reason, until I convinced the peasants how little I knew of my heritage. Even then they sullenly disliked me, so that I had to collect most of the village traditions through the mediation of Norris. What the people could not forgive, perhaps, was that I had come to restore a symbol so abhorrent to them, for, rationally or not, they viewed Exum Priory as nothing less than a haunt of fiends and werewolves. Piecing together the tales which Norris collected for me, and supplementing them with the accounts of several savants who had studied the ruins, I deduced that Exum Priory stood on the site of a prehistoric temple, a druidical or anti-druidical thing which must have been contemporary with Stonehenge. That indescribable rites had been celebrated there few doubted, and there were unpleasant tales of the transference of these rites into the Sibyl worship which the Romans had introduced. Inscriptions still visible in the subcellar bore such unmistakable letters as D.I.V., O.P.S., Magna, Mat, sign of the Magna Mater whose dark worship was once vainly forbidden to Roman citizens. Anchester had been the camp of the Second Augustan Legion, as many remains attest, and it was said that the Temple of Sibylle was splendid and thronged with worshippers who performed nameless ceremonies at the bidding of a Phrygian priest. Tales added that the fall of the old religion did not end the orgies at the temple, but that the priests lived on in the new faith without real change. Likewise was it said that the rites did not vanish with the Roman power, and that certain among the Saxons added to what remained of the Temple and gave it the essential outline it subsequently preserved, making it the center of a cult feared through half the heptarchy. About 1000 AD the place is mentioned in a chronicle as being a substantial stone priory housing a strange and powerful monastic order and surrounded by extensive gardens which needed no walls to exclude a frightened populace. It was never destroyed by the Danes, though after the Norman conquest it must have declined tremendously, since there was no impediment when Henry III granted the site to my ancestor, Gilbert de la 1st Baron Exum, in 1261. Of my family before this date there is no evil report, but something strange must have happened then. In one chronicle there is a reference to a de la Port as Cursed of God in 1307, whilst village legendary had nothing but evil and frantic fear to tell of the castle that went up on the foundations of the old temple and priory. The fireside tales were of the most grisly description, all the ghastlier because of their frightened reticence and cloudy evasiveness. They represented my ancestors as a race of hereditary demons, beside whom Gilles de Retz and the Marquis de Sade would seem the veriest Tyros, and hinted whisperingly at their responsibility for the occasional disappearance of villagers through several generations. The worst characters, apparently, were the barons and their direct heirs, at least most was whispered about these. If of healthier inclinations, it was said, an heir would early and mysteriously die to make way for another, more typical scion. There seemed to be an inner cult in the family, presided over by the head of the house and sometimes closed except to a few members. Temperament rather than ancestry was evidently the basis of this cult for it was entered by several who married into the family. Lady Margaret Trevor from Cornwall, wife of Godfrey, the second son of the fifth baron, became a favorite bane of children all over the countryside and the demon heroine of a particularly horrible old ballad not yet extinct near the Welsh border. Preserved in Balladry too, though not illustrating the same point, is the hideous tale of Lady Mary de la Poire, who shortly after her marriage to the Earl of Shrewsfield was killed by him and his mother, both of the slayers being absolved and blessed by the priest to whom they confessed what they dared not repeat to the world. These myths and ballads, typical as they were of crude superstition, repelled me greatly Their persistence and their application to so long a line of my ancestors were especially annoying. Whilst the imputations of monstrous habits proved unpleasantly reminiscent of the one known scandal of my immediate forebears. The case of my cousin, young Randolph Delapore of Carfax, who went and became a voodoo priest after he returned from the Mexican War. I was much less disturbed by the vaguer tales of wails and howlings in the barren windswept valley beneath the limestone cliff, of the graveyard stenches after the spring rains, of the floundering squealing white thing on which Sir John Clave's horse had trod one night in a lonely field, and of the servant who had gone mad at what he saw in the priory in the full light of day. These things were hackneyed spectral lore, and I was at that time a pronounced skeptic. The accounts of vanished peasants were less to be dismissed, though not especially significant in view of medieval custom. Prying curiosity meant death, and more than one severed head had been publicly shown on the bastions, now effaced, around Exempriary. Priory. A few of the tales were exceedingly picturesque, and made me wish I had learnt more of comparative mythology in my youth. There was, for instance, the belief that a legion of bat-winged devils kept witches' Sabbath each night at the Priory, a legion whose sustenance might explain the disproportionate abundance of coarse vegetables harvested in the vast gardens. And, most vivid of all, there was the dramatic epic of the Rats, the scampering army of obscene vermin, which had burst forth from the castle three months after the tragedy that doomed it to desertion. The lean, filthy, ravenous army which had swept all before it and devoured fowl, cats, dogs, hogs, sheep, and even two hapless human beings before its fury was spent. Around that unforgettable rodent army, a whole separate cycle of myths revolves, for it scattered among the village homes and brought curses and horrors in its train. Such was the lore that assailed me as I pushed to completion, with an elderly obstinacy, the work of restoring my ancestral home. It must not be imagined for a moment that these tales formed my principal psychological environment. On the other hand, I was constantly praised and encouraged by Captain Norris and the antiquarians who surrounded and aided me. When the task was done, over two years after its commencement, I viewed the great rooms, wainscoted walls, vaulted ceilings, mullioned windows, and broad staircases with a pride which fully compensated for the prodigious expense of the restoration. Every attribute of the Middle Ages was cunningly reproduced, and the new parts blended perfectly with the original walls and foundations. The seat of my father's was complete, and I looked forward to redeeming at last the local fame of the line which ended in me. I would reside here permanently and prove that a Delapour, for I had adopted again the original spelling of the name, need not be a fiend. My comfort was perhaps augmented by the fact that, although Exum Priory was medievally fitted, its interior was in truth wholly new and free from old vermin and old ghosts alike. As I have said, I moved in on July 16th, 1923, My household consisted of seven servants and nine cats, of which latter species I am particularly fond. My eldest cat, Black Tom, was seven years old and had come with me from my home in Bolton, Massachusetts. The others I had accumulated whilst living with Captain Norris's family during the restoration of the Priory. For five days, our routine proceeded with the utmost placidity, my time being spent mostly in the codification of old family data, I had now obtained some very circumstantial accounts of the final tragedy and flight of Walter Delapour, which I conceived to be the probable contents of the hereditary paper lost in the fire at Carfax. It appeared that my ancestor was accused, with much reason, of having killed all the other members of his household, except four servant confederates, in their sleep about two weeks after a shocking discovery, which changed his whole demeanor but which, except by implication, he disclosed to no one save perhaps the servants who assisted him and afterward fled beyond reach. This deliberate slaughter, which included a father, three brothers, and two sisters, was largely condoned by the villagers, and so slackly treated by the law that its perpetrator escaped honored, unharmed, and undistinguished to Virginia, the general whispered sentiment being that he had purged the land of an immemorial curse, What discovery had prompted an act so terrible I could scarcely even conjecture. Walter Delapore must have known for years the sinister tales about his family, so that this material could have given him no fresh impulse. Had he then witnessed some appalling ancient rite, or stumbled upon some frightful and revealing symbol in the Priory or its vicinity? He was reputed to have been a shy, gentle youth in England, In Virginia, he seemed not so much hard or bitter as harassed and apprehensive. He was spoken of in the diary of another gentleman adventurer, Francis Harley of Bellevue, as a man of unexampled justice, honor, and delicacy. On July 22nd occurred the first incident which, though lightly dismissed at the time, takes on a preternatural significance in relation to later events. "'It was so simple as to be almost negligible "'and could not possibly have been noticed "'under the circumstances, "'for it must be recalled that since I was "'in a building practically fresh and new "'except for the walls "'and surrounded by a well-balanced staff of servitors, "'apprehension would have been absurd "'despite the locality. "'What I afterward remembered is merely this, "'that my old black cat, "'whose moods I know so well, "'was undoubtedly alert and anxious "'to an extent wholly out of keeping "'with his natural character.' He roved from room to room, restless and disturbed, and sniffed constantly about the walls, which formed part of the old Gothic structure. I realize how trite this sounds, like the inevitable dog in the ghost story, which always growls before his master sees the sheeted figure. Yet I cannot consistently suppress it. The following day, a servant complained of restlessness among all the cats in the house. He came to me in my study, a lofty west room on the second story with groined arches, black oak paneling, and a triple gothic window overlooking the limestone cliff and desolate valley. And even as he spoke, I saw the jetty form of Black Tom creeping along the west wall and scratching at the new panels which overlaid the ancient stone. I told the man that there must be some singular odor or emanation from the old stonework, imperceptible to human senses, but affecting the delicate organs of cats even through the new woodwork. This I truly believed and when the fellow suggested the presence of mice or rats, I mentioned that there had been no rats there for 300 years and that even the field mice of the surrounding country could hardly be found in these high walls where they had never been known to stray. That afternoon I called on Captain Norris and he assured me that it would be quite incredible for field mice to infest the priory in such a sudden and unprecedented fashion. That night, dispensing as usual with a valet, I retired in the West Tower chamber, which I had chosen as my own, reached from the study by a stone staircase and short gallery, the former partly ancient, the latter entirely restored. This room was circular, very high, and without wainscoting, being hung with arras, which I had myself chosen in London. Seeing that Black Tom was with me, I shut the heavy Gothic door, and retired by the light of the electric bulbs which so cleverly counterfeited candles. "'finally switching off the light "'and sinking on the carved and canopied four-poster "'with the venerable cat in his accustomed place "'across my feet. "'I did not draw the curtains "'but gazed out at the narrow north window which I faced. "'There was a suspicion of aurora in the sky "'and the delicate traceries of the window "'were pleasantly silhouetted. "'At some time I must have fallen quietly asleep.' for I recall a distinct sense of leaving strange dreams when the cat started violently from his placid position. I saw him in the faint auroral glow, head strained forward, forefeet on my ankles, and hind feet stretched behind. He was looking intensely at a point on the wall somewhat west of the window, a point which to my eye had nothing to mark it, but toward which all my attention was now directed. And as I watched, I knew that Black Tom was not vainly excited Whether the Arras actually moved I cannot say. I think it did, very slightly, but what I can swear to is that behind it I heard a low distinct scurrying as of rats or mice. In a moment the cat had jumped bodily on the screening tapestry, bringing the affected section to the floor with his weight and exposing a damp ancient wall of stone, patched here and there by the restorers and devoid of any trace of rodent prowlers. Black Tom raced up and down the floor by this part of the wall, clawing the fallen Arras and seemingly trying at times to insert a paw between the wall and the oaken floor. He found nothing, and after a time returned wearily to his place across my feet. I had not moved, but I did not sleep again that night. In the morning, I questioned all the servants and found that none of them had noticed anything unusual save that the cook remembered the actions of a cat which had rested on her window sill. This cat had howled at some unknown hour of the night, awaking the cook in time for her to see him dart purposefully out of the open door down the stairs. I drowsed away the noontime and in the afternoon called again on Captain Norris, who became exceedingly interested in what I told him. The odd incidents, so slight yet so curious, appealed to his sense of the picturesque, "'and elicited from him a number of reminiscences of local ghostly lore. "'We were genuinely perplexed at the presence of rats, "'and Norris lent me some traps and Paris green, "'which I had the servant's place in strategic localities when I returned. "'I retired early, being very sleepy, "'but was harassed by dreams of the most horrible sort. "'I seemed to be looking down from an immense height upon a twilight grotto, "'knee-deep with filth, where a white-bearded demon swineherd drove about with his staff a flock of fungus flabby beasts whose appearance filled me with unutterable loathing. Then, as the swineherd paused and nodded over his task, a mighty swarm of rats rained down on the stinking abyss and fell to devouring beasts and man alike. From this terrific vision I was abruptly awaked by the motions of Black Tom who had been sleeping as usual across my feet. This time I did not have to question the source of his snarls and hisses and of the fear which made him sink his claws into my ankle unconscious of their effect. For on every side of the chamber the walls were alive with nauseous sound, the verminous slithering of ravenous gigantic rats. There was now no aurora to show the state of the Arras, the fallen section of which had been replaced, but I was not too frightened to switch on the light. As the bulbs leapt into radiance, I saw a hideous shaking all over the tapestry, causing the somewhat peculiar designs to execute a singular dance of death. This motion disappeared almost at once, and the sound with it. Springing out of bed, I poked at the Arras with the long handle of a warming pan that rested near, and lifted one section to see what lay beneath. There was nothing but the patched stone wall, and even the cat had lost his tense realization of abnormal presences. When I examined the circular trap that had been placed in the room, I found all of the openings sprung, though no trace remained of what had been caught and had escaped. Further sleep was out of the question, so lighting a candle, I opened the door and went out in the gallery toward the stairs to my study, Black Tom following at my heels. Before we had reached the stone steps, however, the cat darted ahead of me and vanished down the ancient flight. As I descended the stairs myself, I became suddenly aware of sounds in the great room below, sounds of a nature which could not be mistaken. The oak-paneled walls were alive with rats, scampering and milling, whilst Black Tom was racing about with the fury of a baffled hunter. Reaching the bottom, I switched on the light, which did not this time cause the noise to subside. The rats continued their riot, stampeding with such force and distinctness that I could finally assign to their motions a definite direction. These creatures, in numbers apparently inexhaustible, were engaged in one stupendous migration from inconceivable heights to some depth conceivably or inconceivably below. You've been listening to Through a Glass Darkly from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. Tonight's production, The Rats in the Walls, by H.P. Lovecraft. Part 1 of 2. Produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, in association with WERALP Radio Arlington, 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Read, edited, and mastered by William R. Coughlin. Recorded at Tohubohu Productions in Burke, Virginia. This recording is the property of Team Jabberwocky, LLC, and may not be rebroadcast, retransmitted, or redistributed without express permission from Team J. For all the latest episodes and information on Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, visit jabberaudio.com. If you're enjoying Through a Glass Darkly and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of mysterious suspense and high adventure. Until next time, thanks for listening, and tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion of The Rats in the Walls. Thou slain the Jabberwock. You're listening to Tuesday Terrors on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is our weekly anthology for science fiction and fantasy as Lothar Tuppen brings you Wednesday Wonders. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day of amazing audio or find the Wednesday Wonders feed in your favorite podcast player. And thank you for listening, everybody.